Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we could come before you on this day before Christmas when we traditionally get together to to celebrate the birth of your coming. We thank you, uh, O Lord Jesus, for all the work that you have done. We thank you that you, even as you have left this earth and returned to heaven, that you continue to intercede and to act on behalf of your church. And we pray now, Lord, as we come, that you would give us ears to hear your word. I pray, O God, that the words that I would speak would be your words, that you would direct and guide us. Father, we thank you and we praise you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Micah chapter 5 if you've not kept it open there. And uh, as you're doing that, let me just uh, say that, uh, give you a little bit of background on the book of Micah, uh, just in case you've not read that a little while. I know that for most Christians, uh, the places where their pages stick together the most are probably the minor prophets. You know, we oftentimes don't spend a lot of time reading the minor prophets, and so I want us to look at Micah chapter 5 and and just remember that Micah prophesied at the same time that Isaiah did. And we've been talking about Isaiah the last several weeks and and how he's come to proclaim to the southern kingdom uh, God's word. Well, Micah is also prophesying at a very dark time in God's people. It's actually just a little bit beyond uh, what we've been looking at in Isaiah, the same time period, but it's just a little bit later uh, Assyria has come in and has wiped out the northern nation, has taken all those tribes into captivity in Assyria. And so those ten tribes are gone. They've just been taken to another land. And so now at the time of this prophecy, the Assyrians have come back and have invaded the southern kingdom in Judah, taken over a lot of the smaller towns, and they're heading towards Jerusalem, towards the capital city, where they would lay siege to seek to conquer that city. They wouldn't, but uh, later on they would be taken over instead by Babylon, but still the people were facing this enormous enemy. And in, in the face of such fierce and violent opposition, of course, God's people are looking for hope and for deliverance. And so Micah comes as a prophet, but as he comes, he brings sort of a mixed message. He sort of alternates back and forth between themes of doom, but also of promise and of hope. And it's not that he brings a message of doom, uh, but simply he's announcing the doom that Israel and the nations face because of their sin. So in essence, he's sort of standing before God's people like an attorney, And he's standing there with a court case and saying, Your Honor, and he's talking to God as the judge, he's saying, this is what your covenant people have done. This is how they have broken your covenant. This is how they've been unfaithful before you. And we see that if you look back to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he sort of begins to enumerate some of these sins. He says, They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against his family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily or that's with pride for it will be a time of disaster and so God uh, sort of identifies through his prophet Micah the covetousness uh, how God's people wanted things that they didn't have and so they just stole it 
or they oppressed other people and just the pride that they had committed against each other. But it wasn't just the people, unfortunately. If you look over to chapter 3, verse 9, in chapter 3, verse 9, we see that even the leaders were uh, falling into these sins as well. Now, when we think of leaders, we think of governors or congressmen or, or the president or things like that. And, of course, there was a king over Israel, yes, but the leaders were also priests and prophets. So keep that in mind. These were supposed to be men of God. Okay, but this is how Micah describes them in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Kids, iniquity is sin. Okay, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So for all of this, Micah promises the destruction of God's people. And, then, and we see that, that Samaria will become a heap of ruins, as it says in chapter 1, verse 6. And that happened in 722 BC, where Assyria came and took over Samaria or the northern kingdom. And then in 586 BC, then Babylon came in and wiped out Jerusalem or the southern kingdom. And so you have the people of God along with their leaders over them hating justice and perverting fairness, taking bribes. You have the priests who are taking money. For, for teaching certain things or prophets who are prophesying just what the people want to hear. And they're like, it's okay. God's with us. Nothing's going to happen. And they were, were giving in to the lust of their own desires and uh, dishonoring the Lord. Now, what the problem is, is that they did not take or heed Micah's warnings that he brought. And this is one of the lessons of the minor prophets that we need to keep in mind even today. Just the danger of not listening when God speaks, of not taking seriously when God warns us through his word and through his proclamation of his word and of not recognizing that God means what he says. Now, this is uh, one of the things that we need to desperately ask God to burn into our hearts and our minds as well, that when God speaks, he means what he says. You know, and I know we can hear the words and, and you know, kids, I grew up in the church as well. And I've, I, I can, you know, I can remember just a little portion of my life not being in church. But other than that, I've always heard the word of God preached. And sometimes you can just hear it so much and you hear the preacher standing up front talking. And, you know, it can sort of sound like that teacher on Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 you know, and you just sort of begin to zone out and you don't hear it. But we have to understand that, especially when there's the reading of the Word of God, that that is God speaking to His people. And that's a glorious basis on which we claim His promises. You know, that when we hear that Word speak spoken, we know that that's God's promises that He gives to His people. And we delight in these gracious promises of God and the assurance we have, even when we don't feel like they're true. You know, and even when everything around us and the circumstances appear to suggest that what God says in this word is not true, we know that God means what he says and does what he promises. Amen? And we rest our souls on that. But I think, you know, it is correspondingly true 
that when God gives us words of warning, he also means what he says and he also does what he promises. And so if he promises word, if he says words of warning and promises that there will be judgment, we can trust that God will do that because God does not select to be faithful in the things that are only pleasant to us. He is faithful and true to everything that he says and everything that he promises. And Israel stands before us even today as sort of a monument to that truth that God is faithful to his word. Israel turned a deaf ear to the prophets who brought God's warning to them. They would not listen. And of course, you know, there were some prophets who came and they did listen to, but these were false prophets who were not speaking the word of the Lord. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, wow, this is a great warning for us. This is a great warning for me. It's a great warning for you. Are we prone to only take to heart those things that are pleasant to us from God's word? Or do we listen to God when he warns us of our sin and rebellious heart through his word and by his Holy Spirit? Are we willing to listen to God when what he says is uncomfortable and is disturbing to us? Or do we merely look for a different prophet, a different preacher who has a better message that we like to listen to and whose message is easier to hear? How easy it is for all of us to live lives that are duplicitous, you know, deceiving ourselves by making excuses for our sins and then patting ourselves on the back when we don't act as badly as we could. You know, you're like, well, at least I didn't. And then you can fill in the blank. And we're proud of that even though oftentimes the way we live is dishonoring to the Lord. But that's not what God desires for us. You know, God, you know, desires for us that we would be a people that are humble, that would walk before him. And so mingled with this message of gloom is also a message of future glory and of honor to the Lord. Listen to the words of Micah chapter 6. These are probably very familiar. As a matter of fact, if I told you to quote one verse from Micah, these are probably the verses that you would refer to. Micah chapter 6, verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, this isn't some kind of works righteousness where God's saying, hey, you guys just need to be better. You just need to be more humble. You just need to walk with your God. No, that's not what he's saying. He said that he is a God who delivers us. And because of the salvation that he has given to us, this is what we can expect, the work that he will do in our hearts. And what he wants, what Micah wants his people to see is who God is. Because what the people have done is that they have set their hearts upon the idols that were around them rather than the Lord God. They have forgotten who their God is. And as a result, they have turned away from him. And so this morning, it's good for us to be reminded of who God is and how he works amongst his people. And I want us to see three things this morning. First of all, that God magnifies his glory. I want us to see that from verse 2, that God acts to magnify his glory. Look at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now, I want you to see the contrast there between the littleness of the town of Bethlehem, 
or the insignificance of the town of Bethlehem with the greatness of the ruler who will come out of her, out of the ruler who is great and awesome. Bethlehem is, is scarcely even worth mentioning amongst the clans of Judah, uh, Micah tells us. It's so tiny. As a matter of fact, uh, they had to clarify which Bethlehem it was that the Messiah was going to be born in because there were several Bethlehems and the other ones were way more important than this one. This one was so insignificant. So he says Bethlehem Ephrathah just to, to specify that. Now, why, you know, um, why is it that God chose to bring the Messiah from such a small, insignificant town? Well, one answer is, is because he comes from the line of David, and David is from Bethlehem, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I want us to see, really, the point of verse 2 is, is that Bethlehem is small, that God chooses something small, quiet, out of the way, and does something there that changes the course of history in eternity. Now, why is that? Well, because when God acts this way, we cannot boast in the merits of men, but only in the glorious mercy of our God. When God uses small things in our lives, when God uses insignificant things in our life to do his work, then we can't boast or brag. Bethlehem can't say, well, wow, look how great we are. I mean, it, it was significant in the sense that that's where Ruth was. And that's where Boaz met Ruth and they got married and then they had a grandson named David. He grew up to be king. You say, well, that's big stuff. Well, yeah. But if you think about it, when God sent Samuel to Bethlehem to choose a new king from the sons of Jesse, you know, he didn't pick the oldest. He didn't pick the strongest. You know, he, as a matter of fact, he went through all the sons and then finally he's like, well, don't you have another son? And they're like, oh, yeah, we got, you know, Little brother, David, he's out in the field with the sheep. You know, he's that brother. And uh, Samuel says, go get him. And he comes and he anoints him as king of Israel. And as a matter of fact, David was sort of insignificant enough in the eyes of his uh, family that when his brothers went off to battle, all David got to do was take the supplies to his brothers and check on them to make sure that they were okay. And here they all are cowering in the face of this giant. And David, you know, walks out there and he's like, well, this guy is slandering the name of the Lord our God. Are we going to do something about it? And they're like, yeah, sure. And they're just shaking. And David's like, I'll go deal with this. But he doesn't take all the armor and the, well, the weapons and all that kind of stuff that is at Israel's disposal. Instead, he just takes a sling and five stones and he goes out and he meets this giant. But to show you how God works in, the, in, in things that are small and things that are tiny, listen to what David says to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45. David says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And then he goes on, he said, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And so God uses even little towns, youngest sons, slingshots, all these things to show and to demonstrate his glory to show that he is not the least dependent 
on human glory or greatness or achievement at all. But our God is a God who works to proclaim who he is. Another passage, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would. Paul also talks about the greatness of God, and he's doing it in the context of preaching. You know, Paul's like, hey, I'm not a great preacher, you know, but that's not how God works. And he's, you know, he's surrounded in Corinth by all these great orators and stuff. And he's here again making the point that God works through the ordinary. God works through ordinary grace, uh, ordinary means of grace. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then at the end, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, our God gives to us uh, a message that we are not as good as we think we are. We are a sinful people. And then he provides salvation through a man who, the God man who lived 2,000 years ago and who died on a cross. And we're like, what is up with that? That doesn't make sense in our modern age that that is what would make us right with God. But God works through means like that to show us that we can add nothing to our salvation, that we are dependent upon Him. You see, we serve a God that will share His glory with no one. He will share His glory with no one. And so He works in a way that everything points back to Him and to the greatness and who He is. And in our inability to boast, then that drives us independence upon him because we want to steal God's glory we think we are more than what we really are we think that we are great but God works through these ordinary means he works uh, not in flashy ways that's externally outstanding but he does so in a way that would bring honor and glory to him so as we come this morning let us never forget that that God is a God who works for his glory, and he does that through small things. And as he does, and as we are denied what the boasting and the bragging that we want to do about ourselves, uh, it actually gives us the freedom, instead of boasting, to give gratitude and praise to God for what he has done. And so it takes us as his people, instead of being blowhards, arrogant son of the guns, you know, he turns us into worshipers to people to come before him and to praise his name. So God uh, uh, works for his glory. He also keeps his promises. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, From you shall come forth for me one who is a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Any Jew, any Jew that, that heard Micah's prediction of a coming ruler out of Bethlehem would have, and especially when he talks about feeding his flock and the strength of the Lord, would have immediately thought of David as the king and shepherd of his people, but also probably of the Messiah as well. And, and he says here, he's the one that comes from of old. Well, what Micah is doing is reasserting the certainty of God's promise to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7, 12, God said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then he goes on in that 
section and he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The amazing thing, though, about Micah is, is that as he uh, reminds God's people of this promise, that he doesn't do so as Israel is coming to power. It's not like, yes, see how great and awesome things are around you? Uh, you see what I'm doing? I'm fulfilling my promise. No, it's like as Israel is going down, as his enemies are overtaking him, as the nation, the northern kingdom has been taken away, the southern kingdom is about to fall. It is in those times that God sends this word that he is keeping his promise. Once again, as I said before, it's in those times of weakness that we come. And God wants his people to know that he has not forgotten his promises. Even if it means going back to the beginning and starting, as it were, starting all over in Bethlehem. When the hope leaches away in the face of difficult days ahead, and, and none of us knows what next year holds for us in 2018, you know, as we are coming to uncertainties, there may be times when we need to be reminded that we have hope in the Lord. That Micah reminds us that it is in Jesus Christ that all of God's promises are yes. And that no matter what the circumstances are that we encounter, no matter what happens to us financially, what happens to us health-wise, no matter what happens to us relationship-wise, that God's promises are true. And there's nothing that can take that away. Amen? that our souls are secure in Him and that we can rest and we can trust in Him. He will take us through those worldly troubles and difficulties. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where is God? He's right there with us. He's walking with us. His rod and His staff, they comfort us. But we also know that his, our promises are not just here upon this earth, that our promises are eternal and will carry us all the way through to heaven. And you can tell how firmly someone believes God's promises by whether it gives him strength and hope when life caves in around him. Amen? Let me say that again. That you can tell how firmly someone believes God's promises by whether it gives him strength and hope even when life caves in around him. Haven't you seen those, those saints? You know, it's not like they're super saints. It's not like there's anything great in and of them. They just know where to place their trust. They just know where the solid rock is. They know that Jesus Christ is the one that will see them through. And Micah, it appears, never wavered in these times. And there are many things in our lives that are sure. Uh, there are not many things, excuse me, in our lives that are that are sure. And they're, and most everything in our life is unshakable. And as we get older. I think that seems to be less so the case. Things seem to be much more fragile as as we get older. You know, when we're in our 20s, in our 30s, in our 40s, we're sort of in the prime, you know? Things are good. We got everything under control. Okay, so there's a few things in my life maybe that I don't feel like I have control over. But for the most part, things are all right. You know, I'm, I'm happening, especially when you're in your, your teen years and you're getting to your early 20s and you're just sort of getting out of school and sort of entering into life. Yeah, it's a little scary, but you know what? You're going to make it. And as a matter of fact, you have lots of dreams. But let me suggest to you that those can be times when we can easily trust our flesh. It's in those times when we deceive ourselves and we think that we are strong when we are weak. 
And actually, I think in many ways, as the older we get, many times, and this doesn't automatically happen, but for one who walks with the Lord, oftentimes he becomes wiser. We realize that everything is withering, everything is fading. The only thing that is sure and true is the Word of God. And if we realize this and we stand on God's promises, we will have strength and hope and joy to the end of our days here upon the earth. The point of Micah is that two centuries and and many terrible circumstances do not nullify the word of God. What is spoken by the prophet Isaiah is true. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And so will God's promises. And so God keeps his promises. Now, I want us to notice one other thing, sort of as a clarifier. In this verse 2, he talks about, he says, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Of course, this is God speaking. This is a word of the Lord to his people. So when he says, for me, he's talking about what Jesus' mission is here upon this earth. That uh, he came not just to... to show that he fulfilled the promises, but really that what God is is seeking to do uh, is to send Christ here for a mission. And what was his mission? Um, you know, he came to, to die upon the cross to, to uh, uh, save a people for himself. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, all those things are true and, and part of the mission that he come. But Uh, God says that really he came for the glory of God. He came to exalt the Lord our God. If you think about the words that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 and verse 4, Jesus is praying to the Father. And what does he pray? He said, I have glorified you on earth, having finished the work that you gave me to do. Okay, so in fulfilling these things and purchasing the people, Jesus did the things that God told him, but the ultimate purpose was to glorify God and all of that. And that was the mission of Christ. And brothers and sisters, I, I want you to know that, that I find this profoundly helpful in making the necessary judgments in my own heart as I think about the promises of God. Because sometimes my temptation when I think about the promises of God is how this is going to affect me. What am I going to get out of this? How is God going to be faithful to me But then when I understand this in light of the fact that really, truly, God makes his promises for the purpose of glorifying himself, then I understand sometimes why I have to go through trials, why sometimes things are very difficult, why sometimes God says, wait. Why sometimes God takes me lower than I think I ever need to go because he needs to deal with the stubbornness and the stiff-neckedness of my heart to humble me so that I might depend and might trust upon him. God is so good. Well, that takes us to the third point, that God also protects his people. Look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So God protects his people as king. Jesus is not only our Savior, as we know, but he's also our king. In verse 4, Micah uses the language associated with Israel's king, especially David as the shepherd king. You know, here's what it means for Jesus to be the king. Uh, Look what else he says at the end of verse 4. 
Jesus, when Jesus comes, he says, and, and he shall dwell secure, and they shall dwell secure. That is, his people shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now, it's interesting that that phrase, dwell secure, comes from the root that means to sit. Okay, to sit. Now, this is a this is a beautiful picture, and you have to get this. If you didn't hear anything else I said, kids, I know you're wiggling. You know, it's it's been a long sermon, but listen, okay? This is really important that we hear this. The, what the picture is here is at the beginning of this verse, Jesus stands to shepherd his flock. He is standing to shepherd his flock. Because he stands ever vigilant to watch over us, we may sit down in utter security at his feet to graze on the green pasture to which he brings us by his word, knowing that we're safe. Do you see that? That because Christ stands and he is caring for his people and he is watching over us and he is giving us the things that we need, he's giving us his promise and he's giving us those things, we can sit secure, we can rest, and as a result of that, we have what? We have peace. You know, but I think about our lives and how we are more like the sheep thinking we're the ones that are standing. We're the ones that are going to have to make things happen. And so we're trying to just like organize all these things in our life and keep all these balls going. And we're not sitting, are we? We're not sitting. We think we are the ones who are the shepherds and the, and of our own lives. And yet Christ says, no, he is the shepherd. So what a picture. Jesus, our shepherd, stands in constant watchful care. His eye is always upon us. You can never stray from the light of his sight. Everything, nothing in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God. And the beautiful thing about that is, as we read in Philippians 2, 9, it talks about how therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on the names that is above every name. Okay, so where is Christ now? Christ is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And, and what is he doing? I don't know if you think about this much, especially kids, if I ask you, if I said, hey, what, what did Jesus Christ come to do? And you will talk about how he came to this earth, he, he was obedient to the Father, he died on the cross, he's raised again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and then what? It's over, right? No, did you know that Christ is still at work? On behalf of his church, in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it talks about Christ and it says that he is the one who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. He is that shepherd who knows us and knows our temptations and knows our struggles and knows how we are sheep that like to like run away from the flock. We just like to wander. We like to do our own thing. And our, our heavenly Jesus is our heavenly shepherd. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in a position of authority, interceding on behalf of his church, praying for us. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that's a great Christmas gift. Amen. To be gathered into God's global family, the church, and to made to, to, to be secure to know that God is a God who works on behalf of his glory. He, he is a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who protects his people. And notice here that as he says this as our shepherd, 
that he he does so. Um, I lost the verse. Okay, it says that he he does so um, in the strength of the Lord. In other words, there's there's no lack of strength that God needs, and not only does he do it in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his God, but he does this to the ends of the earth. Okay, there will be no pocket of resistance. There's no authority, no power that is not underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. All things have been placed under his feet. And as we are reminded of that as a church, that means no matter what we encounter here upon this life on this earth, that it is under the authority and the rule of Jesus Christ and we can rest in our shepherd. And so I guess I want to ask ourselves, is that the message that we're preaching to ourselves this Christmas? You know, for some of us, I suppose, maybe not unlike uh, Jerusalem in the days of Micah, tomorrow and the tomorrows after that and, and 2018 are, are filled with uncertainty. Maybe not to the same degree that they were uh, for those in, in the city of Jerusalem, but still to no small degree nonetheless. And maybe once the, the Christmas parties are over, you know, all the gifts have been done and everybody's celebrated and we've had sort of this time of distraction, then we go back to everyday life. We go back to those, those times and we need to be reminded that Jesus is my good shepherd, that he is the king and it's under his rule that we are and it's under his rule that we are safe. And that's the Christmas message that we need to preach to our hearts that we have a king today in Christ Jesus, a king who will rule over his people, a king in which we are safe and he is trustworthy and we can rest in him. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and just meditate upon the word this morning. Father, we thank you so much that you have sent the Messiah, Jesus. We thank you that he not only came as king 2,000 years ago and was born in a manger in, in Bethlehem, but that today he rules over your people. Lord, we, we know that this life is still is so difficult, but we thank you that you have not left us alone, that God, you have placed us under the protection of your son, that there is none, as, as Psalm 2 reminds us, that the nations come against him and, and you just laugh because you know what a, what a foolish endeavor that is. And yet, God, we are, as your people, so caught up in that and we, we are terrified by the rulers of this nation and by the things that could harm us. And we forget that Jesus is our king. We forget how mighty and how great he is and we ask for your forgiveness and pray, oh God, that you would Bring these words to mind this week and next month and for the year after that. And God, that you would just continually keep before us the greatness of our God, that we could rest in him. Lord, that rather than seeking to boast in our own abilities, or that we would worship and praise you for what you have done on the behalf of your church. We praise and thank you and pray all this in your name. Amen.